Welcome to Autoimmune Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Justin Janoska, clinician and founder of the Autoimmune Revolution. After watching my mom suffer with autoimmune disease, I have made it my mission and purpose to help people like you. Unlock the door to better results, regain control of your body, and feel like yourself again. I want you to become an autoimmune alchemist and get your life back. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. May you be filled today with joy, abundance, and loving kindness. Peace and love. Don't let your stress come from trying to live the life that other people want you to be. A lot easier said than done, isn't it? We probably have all done this where we change our behaviors, our personality, and do things in life that appease others, please others. And what we're doing instead is we're enacting self-betrayal. We're denying our true essence and really stifling our potential. And so that's the practice is to own our power, stand in that power, get clear on what we will tolerate and not tolerate, and find out what it is that you hold at your in the depth of your heart. And this is tough to access and see if we have layers of trauma, which is why I talk about this a lot and why we may perhaps li- try to live the life that other people want you to be. So if that's something you are doing, well, these might be this might be part of the reason why you're struggling with illness and disease and autoimmunity. Again, this is the angle I take a lot of times because we have to focus on things like this and look at behaviors and how we're showing up in the world because it's not just about food and pathogens and, well, toxins. But that being said, today we're going to discuss all those sort of things, toxins and toxicants and autoimmune disease. So I welcome you to Autoimmune Revolution Radio, and let's dive into this. Truth be told, there is a lot to say about this, and I'm going to keep this pretty brief uh, as much as I can, and uh, I hope you'll stick with me on this. There are key points I want to make about this, and I'm going to start with just the basic descriptions and and definitions because I think a lot of this can be confusing. And a lot of these words are used interchangeably, toxins, toxicants, xenobiotics, but there are slight differences. So when we talk about a toxicant, we're talking about anything that's man-made or in the environment that is causing harm to the body when it enters the body. Okay. So it can be a naturally occurring substance in the environment, right? Like mold and um, other organism, uh, toxins that organisms secrete and man-made chemicals like glyphosate, for example. The word toxins refers to something produced by biological organisms. So bugs, pathogens, mold, mycotoxins, right? That falls under the toxicant category. Now, there is another term called xenobiotic, and this is a subset of toxicants. And this really refers to something that is foreign to the body and is is really uh, man-made. So synthetic chemicals and pesticides and drugs and pollutants and food additives, etc. All xenobiotics are toxicants, but not all toxicants are xenobiotics. 
to make it really simple, I just say toxicants because it, it includes man-made chemicals and also organic naturally occurring things. But just to be clear too, xenobiotics um, are things that are generally, again, foreign to the body that can create a lot of harm. And we're going to talk about how this relates to autoimmune disease. Now, one thing I'll mention before I get into that is toxins are pro-oxidants, right? They cause oxidative damage. They hijack electrons. They cause, this causes oxidative stress. And we have to neutralize these things with antioxidants, obviously. And then there are pathogens, which are toxin providers. And all pathogens increase oxidative stress by oxidizing biomolecules for normal metabolism. And this creates illness, of course, it can. One thing to keep in mind is that as long as pathogens, and I've noticed this, is that when, as long as pathogens persist in the body, there is a steady consumption of antioxidants, which is why it is a no-brainer for me, with anyone I'm working with who has autoimmune disease or any illness, to be on a... Uh, high quantity of antioxidants. It's one of the staples of autoimmune disease because you're dealing with inflammation and oxidative stress all the time. And if you have pathogens, for example, then of course you're going to use up your antioxidant reserves. So that's why things like curcumin and resveratrol and glutathione and NAC and acetylcysteine and all these and, and many more are very, very useful and necessary. So it's not even a question to me. And if you're dealing with toxins and a high burden, you definitely want to be on antioxidants. Vitamin C is an, is an obvious one that we know of. So when we talk about autoimmune disease and chemicals, there's, there's a lot going on, honestly. And we know that um, many chemicals out there can induce autoimmune disease and perpetuate it. You know, clinically for me, I don't see a lot of this because I'm not always testing for it. I have in the past and I have occasionally with people, depending on their history and their symptoms and their current exposures. And that's how I look at it. I just don't uh, test for these things because I feel like everyone needs to test for this stuff. That's my approach. But we do want to acknowledge the fact that, yes, this is a real issue. And when, when, when certain toxins, toxicants, right, get into the circulation, usually, usually it can get eliminated pretty well through sweating, through the liver, through the bile, your detox systems can remove it. However, it can also be metabolized and converted into metabolites that alter immune function. And this is one of the things that can happen where it can lead to immune suppression if you have a lot, uh, a lot of chemicals and, and toxicants in your system, this can suppress immunity and you would see this with a dampened immune response or low white blood cell count perhaps, which then can allow for a breeding ground of infections and pathogens to flourish. Or it can stimulate the immune system and create hypersensitivity and induce autoimmune disease and perpetuate it. So it can go either way and there's no way of knowing until you look at the person and see what's happening and look at the labs. <clears throat> so let me talk to you a little bit about how chemicals and xenobiotics can trigger autoimmune disease. Uh, not to get too wrapped up in the bio 
chemistry and what's going on, but just to make it simple here, one of the ways that we should under, that we should understand about toxins, toxicants rather, is that they can change the microbiome. And it seems nowadays anything can change the microbiome, including stress and your thoughts, right? And food, of course. But chemicals can alter, it can induce a dysbiosis, and this can actually cause organisms to release lipopolysaccharides or endotoxins that are a type of toxin that can really create a lot of havoc in the body. They can break blood-brain barrier, barriers, they can break, break the intestinal barriers to induce leaky gut, and activate the immune system. They activate T-cells, TH17 cells, which are highly active in pretty much everyone with an autoimmune disease. <clears throat> and chemicals can act like adjuvants where they can enhance antibody production. So think about aluminum or silicone breast implants. Okay. And they can bind the tissues and form what's known as a neoantigen. So this is one of the concerns because neoantigens are, you know, a xenobiotic, you might say. It is a foreign substance to the body that alarms the immune system. So chemicals aren't really the issue inherently. It's when they bind your own tissue to protein because then the body, the immune system picks it up and senses that it doesn't belong there and it's a new sort of issue going on. It's a, it's a neo, an, aka new antigen. So that's what alarms the immune system and can t cause cross-reactivity. In other words, it will make antibodies against your own tissue because that protein it's looking at with the chemical bound to it looks like another protein in your body. They call that molecular mimicry. And this is seen in organisms and other in foods and other toxins as well. And we know that chemicals can directly damage tissue. They can bind the DNA, cause damage there. Okay. So that's some of the mechanisms of what's going on there. And there's like a laundry list of chemicals out there that you probably have heard about. BPA, bisphenol A, and plastic, mycotoxins, formaldehyde, and glues, and synthetic multivitamins maybe, uh, penicillin, nail polish, um, mercury, heavy metals, these sort of things. Glyphosate, of course. And th these are some of the more common ones you might see. And I've, I've noticed when people who have reactions to chemicals. And one important thing to know here is that your body is, is very well equipped to eliminate toxins and can biotransform. Detoxification and biotransformation are the same thing. In the literature, they call it biotransformation. So toxins, like the ones I just mentioned, with the exception of metals, can go through the liver. They're water-soluble, formaldehyde, BPA, pesticides, flame, you know, flame retardants, these sort of things, can get eliminated through the liver and out the body, through the skin, through sweating, but heavy metals cannot. They're the one thing that cannot be removed by the liver. So you have to go in, do chelation therapy and other things to get it out. Okay, so hope we're clear on that. Now, one thing I really want to dive into for a minute here is the difference between immune reactivity and chemical burden or quantity. 
a lot of people assume, and they'll show me labs they've had done recently where they tested their metals or chemicals and their blood levels show higher levels of this, more of that, whatever it is. And they think it's a concern or they have to remove it, do a detox or maybe they have done it and nothing's really changing in their symptoms. So what's that about? <clears throat> well, the thing is this, we're all going to be exposed to chemicals and metals. We all have it in us. It's inevitable. We live in a toxic world. It's only getting more uh, toxic, you might say, with everything that's being produced in industry. Now, as long as we support our body, we, we can be in pretty good shape. Of course, there are genetics and other things involved that can, can certainly make this more difficult, right? So it's not simple to just uh, make a conclusion or, or draw a blanket statement around how we can handle this or not handle it. But one thing I want to make clear is just because you have evidence of above normal or above average levels of, of BPA, for example, or some other chemical doesn't mean it is something to be concerned about, okay? Because there is a difference between that and immune reactivity. I've seen people with low quantities, low levels of certain toxins, but have multiple chemical sensitivity. They have all the symptoms and uh, of chemical issues. And if you look at a different type of test where you can measure the immune responses against the chemicals, you see that it's not a pretty picture. And that is the difference in autoimmune disease, okay? Because some people can have, like I said, a high burden but not react and therefore may not be an issue in their case of autoimmune disease. You would still want to support the body to eliminate it. Sure, we all should do that anyway. It's kind of a given. But it doesn't mean it's the root cause, or at least I'm not convinced it is for a lot of people when I see that. And... On the other hand, like I said, if you have lower quantities, maybe even just a little bit of a toxin, that can cause an immune reaction. And on paper, it might look normal, but maybe your body says otherwise. These are two different types of tests, which is why I'm not a big fan of blood tests for, for chemicals. I might do them. I might look at someone's previous labs, but I have to look at the person in front of me, their symptoms, their history, and more importantly, do I need to look for immune react reactivity to these chemicals? Because a buildup build up of toxins is one thing, like I said here, but it's dose dependent. A safe or unsafe amount of a, a chemical may or may not induce a reaction. So I hope that, hope, hope that you understand that a trace level, a small amount of a chemical can impact and, and, trigger autoimmune disease. It just depends. But the last thing I want to do is, is and, and, and it really, really irks me, is that when people get really wrapped up in this and get really attached to chemicals and toxins, and yes, we all have them, we're going to be exposed to it, but thinking that and believing that it's your issue, when maybe there's no evidence for that, maybe there is no chemical reactivity in, in the form of an immune response. So really, reactivity is worse than chemical load and how much you have, okay? So I hope you understand that. Now, when we talk about toxicants, how is it getting in our body? Like, where, where, where is it sourced from? They're everywhere. We need to look at total body burden and the whole bucket 
of somebody. That's what matters, and even in the case of autoimmune disease in general. There's an accumulation of a lot of things and exposures, but with in the case of chemicals, we need to see what's going on and, and really look at the history and the exposures to make a brief uh, subjective assessment of what you could be exposed to. And there are questionnaires and things like this that can help with that. But when you think about it, there are there is the dispersion of chemicals from car exhaust and gasoline and, and factories and these sort of things. I'm in Bali right now. And let me tell you, there is everyone on a motorbike. And I, I feel like I'm drenched in exhaust all the time. That sounds really nasty, doesn't it? But uh, you smell it. There's people smoking I, more than I'm used to. And I'm learning that they burn the garbage out here and uh, that's in the air and all these things, right? And I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to test my levels when I get home just to see what I, what, where I stand. Even though I don't have an autoimmune disease, I'm not going to test immune reactivity, but I want to see what my exposure is and, and what's changed. And, you know, trust that my body can take care of it and that would warrant increasing antioxidants sauna therapy, sweating, liver support, all these sort of things, which we can get into. But what I'm thinking about here is how in America, wherever you live, we're also getting exposed because it's from these things, like I just mentioned, but they can be, they can, the toxins from, from industry and, and automobiles and whatnot can get into the air. They can get into the soil and then the, the animals eat the soil and the crops that it's in. And then the wind can take it and move it into the clouds and this can get into the rain and then the rain gets into the water supply and it evaporates and it's a whole sort of cycle, right? And before you know it, it's in our water supply, it's in our food supply, it's in the animals we eat, it's in the air we breathe and it's getting inhaled, it's getting absorbed in our skin, we're ingesting it from bioaccumulation in the food and that's just some of the routes that it can take. And this is where we can see how in data and, and studies, how it can cause a whole host of health issues, reproductive issues, respiratory issues, birth defects, cancer, maybe neurological issues, autoimmune disease, PCOS and so forth. Again, just because there's evidence for things like this out there being linked to this disease and that condition doesn't mean that it is the only thing or it applies to you. I hope that's something you, you can see because if we get stuck in this story that, oh my gosh, I have this, I have chemicals, it's got to be what's causing my disease. Maybe, but we have to really look thoroughly. Don't jump to the conclusion that it is your problem. And again, for me, I don't see it a lot. Um, maybe I'm not testing as much, but because I see people improve when we're not doing this, I assume that their body is handling things and taking care of it and eliminating and, uh, the chemicals aren't the issue anymore, or if they were, at least. If they were, then we would not see improvement and symptoms and antibodies and all these things would be out of whack further. Okay. So in a nutshell, some people have big bucks, uh, big bucket size sizes, you might say, and can handle a lot in their body. They can handle a lot of environmental load, and they may have good drainage, detox systems. So that's why they don't deal with any damage or issues. Some people have smaller buckets and have sluggish drainage pathways or 
genetic polymorphisms and things where their detox uh, systems are slower. And that's what kind of happens with people with autoimmune disease, I find, is, and, and again, this could be genetic, but it also can be because of other things that are impairing the machinery and stress, especially trauma, things like this can really slow down detoxification. We know stress does this. It slows down everything, especially liver detoxification. So again, if we're talking about how do I eliminate chemicals and toxins, we can't just simply give your body stuff. We also have to deal with the mind and the things that are obstructing it and interfering with proper elimination. Okay. Again, this is why mind-body medicine is critical in the work we do at the autoimmune revolution. You have to integrate the mind and the things that are creating abnormal biological changes. So what other factors can influence body burden? Like we mentioned, genetics, lifestyle exposure, and choices we make, of course, things you're exposed to at birth, perhaps daily exposures, food, water, air location, those sort of things, and then trauma and stress, like I said. Okay, those are the things I think about. Now, let's talk briefly about persistent organic pollutants versus non-persistent organic pollutants. This is an easy way to kind of split, uh, to kind of, I, I might say, dis, uh, distinguish between what is something you can eliminate and what is something that you perhaps can't. Or you might say even the ones you want to be concerned about versus the ones that are maybe less important, but they're all important, <laughs> honestly. So there are thousands and thousands and thousands of toxins out there, and we haven't even found a fraction of them still, for sure. Okay. But we can still identify major types of toxins, toxicants, that are in our modern society. So we compartmentalize them into POPs, or persistent organic pollutants, and then non-POPs. So the POPs are the ones you want to be more concerned about, and they include things like, you may have heard, heavy metals, mercury, lead, cadmium, pesticides, dioxins, PCBs, PBBs, flame retardants. And if you're not aware of this, things like, like, like PCBs, um, polychlorinated biphenols, are commonly found in the water, in the soil, they're found in farm-raised fish, I believe, and they have been shown to create a lot of issues with thyroid functionality or production, impacting immunity, non-stick cookware like Teflon, very common source of PTFE, uh, polytetrafluoroethylene, I think it is. It's a mouthful. And that's why we want to look at cookware and avoid nonstick pans and things like that, for example. Chlorinated pesticides, okay? That's pretty prevalent, and you're not going to avoid it entirely. It's even used in organic foods, I hate to say it. So um, pesticides, that is. But there, there's only so much we have control over. And what I'm saying here is we can try to avoid exposure through these the best that we can with purchasing, making wiser purchases and, and, and certain lifestyle choices. But 
it comes back to your body and how well you can eliminate it. And that's what you really want to focus on because that's what you have control over, not what's being made in the world. And the non-persistent pollutants are organophosphates, BPA, phthalates, VOCs, uh, solvents like tulene and uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons. And these, again, they're important, but if, we, if, we're really, if we're really going to narrow it down, it's going to be the persistent organic pollutants. And those are the ones that, for me, I'm going to intentionally look for and see if someone's high on that or not. But again, I'm going to focus more on, okay, well, let's reduce exposure in the best way we can, but let's also support the body to eliminate it. Now let's talk about what we can eliminate, and that's heavy metals. Metals are hit or miss for me. I don't always see it as an issue. Sometimes it is. My mom had some issues with mercury because of dental amalgams, and that's one of the common sources of that. And while mercury in its elemental form is non-toxic, the issues around it stem from its ability to be chemically modified to inorganic mercury by the microbes in the gut. Okay, and the problem is because high accumulations can impair enzyme activity and function, induce an immune response, change membranes, uh, can cause neurological issues. We know this is tied to metals or tied to now, I think, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, for example. Something you may not have known is that ear ringing, ringing in the ears, hair loss, is linked to potential mercury toxicity. But the CDC even estimates that upwards of 75% of one's exposure to mercury is rooted in dental amalgams and fillings. Because microbes can't, con uh, excuse me, microbes convert elemental mercury to methylmercury. The second source of exposure of mercury comes from usually game Fish, large game fish, farm-raised fish, Chilean sea bass, uh, swordfish, shark, marlin, uh, tuna, which is why you may have heard to limit your consumption of these things. And I usually agree with that. doesn't mean you can't have fish or tuna, but you don't want to be eating it probably every day unless it's really, really well sourced. Even still, it's hard to come by. Now, that's still with mercury. And we have cadmium. And cadmium is something that may not be discussed a lot, but I notice this could be an issue with people who are exposed to a lot of automobile emissions, right? Spray paint. Um, if you're in, if you're an artist, you use a lot of oils and paints. Like I remember being in art school and undergrad and I was using cadmium a lot and there was a concern of, of, uh, of that and how that could be absorbed in my skin and, and all that. So like you think about your, your profession and what you do for your hobbies and this can, and, and, and looking into this, you can kind of get an idea of, okay, maybe this is something to look into. Something that you may not know is that, and I look for this too, is when someone is presenting iron deficiency anemia or they have anemic tendencies, you want to think maybe metals because of the fact that in the gut, Metals and iron use the same transporter protein. So if you're dealing with an accumulation of metals, that can be uh, the transporter protein might pref 
prefer that and bring it across the gut lining instead of iron. And that's one of the ways you can sort of imply that maybe there's a metal issue or help you explore that further or, or encourage you to explore that further. Okay, so quick little tip with that because iron deficiency is very common, but it's not always due to metals. And that's sort of one of the things that I don't just jump into to explore and test, but it's something to be aware of because that might be a clue. Now, when we talk about lead, this is sourced usually from lead-based paints, but again, this is from older homes built before like 1980 or so, so in lead pipes maybe, but if we're not around that, where, where is it coming from? Well, it can come from diet a little bit, perhaps. And, well, certainly foods can have varying levels of heavy metals due to the unpredictability of the soil's nutrient profile. But the range of, of absorbed lead from diet can be as much as, I think, 10% and can be much higher in individuals with poor gut health. The bone is the main target for, for lead accumulation, okay? Um, much like cadmium, lead shares the same carrier protein in the gut, so there's a higher chance of, of lead absorption in iron deficiency. All right? And believe it or not, hypertension, if that's a situation you're dealing with, can be triggered and related to lead. Again, another correlation doesn't mean that hypertension is all from lead, but something to be aware of. And one thing I want to mention, too, is that lead also interferes with the building blocks of red blood cells, specifically porphyrin synthesis, which is a fundamental frame, foundational framework, you might say, for red blood cells, which basically means if it's interrupted, this can result in microcytic anemia, which means you're going to see on labs, generally, a low MCV, mean corpuscular volume, low mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, MCHC, and a oftentimes a high red cell distribution width. So again, looking at certain blood labs, like blood profiles. So that's why it's valuable to look at comprehensive metabolic panels and seeing what these values might look like because yes, it might say it's iron deficiency. It's a deficiency of, of B12 or B9 if, if the levels are high, for instance, but it can imply that, well, maybe there is something to look into with metals. Um, but I wouldn't just jump right into it and assume that you have a metal issue. It doesn't mean that. Now, let me give you a quick, some quick insight into testing for metals because I think there's a large degree of confusion around this. And it's not really that simple. Like, I'll just do a blood test or hair test, and that's going to give me the truth of where I stand. It's actually quite more intricate. So, for instance, if you're looking at mercury, whole blood testing is ideal. It's good for measuring acute, current exposure, methylmercury, ethylmercury from vaccines. That's what you want to do, whole blood. Okay? Now, with lead, whole blood testing is also the preferred method. Okay, good there. Whole blood for both, mercury and lead. Now, when you get to cadmium, it's not whole blood. Urine is really the best for accumulated exposure. But 
blood, cadmium is good for recent exposure. Slight difference there. Arsenic, which by the way is found in all kinds of fish, and usually it's where I see it come from, a 24-hour unprovoked urine test is ideal for arsenic testing. What does that mean? It means we're not giving a chelator like DMSA. When we say provoked, we're saying we're giving a chelating agent to force the body to, to pull this stuff out so we can measure it and see how much is there. So this is an unprovoked urine test. And then lastly, I'll say aluminum. But the thing with aluminum is that even though it is a problem, it's not something that's typically tested for. So you really do need to request it. Some labs that I run that look at all sorts of metals uh, will contain will, will have that factored in, but it's not the norm. Again, it's one thing you can consider, but I just look at the person and you would want to consider it only if you know you're without a shadow of a doubt, you've been exposed to a lot of aluminum in your life. Now, hair testing is very popular. Many use it. A lot of my colleagues and doctors use it. And I have nothing against it per se, but it's is it my preferred choice? Probably not. It can cause some false positives, I've learned. And there's variability in results due to external contaminants from hair products, which can have inorganic mercury. Water can have lead and arsenic in it. And so there are things that can can really distort the findings, and that's why it's not my go-to. But if it's if it's something you you want to do and it's easy to do and it's cheap, then sure, I think it's it's fine to do to get some idea. But I would not. I, I'd be very hesitant to say that all my that what I see on 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 a hair test is is the most accurate representation of what's going on. Okay, so you're hearing all this, and maybe you're going, okay, what can I do? Right. Well, with metals, we we like we discussed, that requires some intensive chelation therapy, usually for a long period of time, and under some medical supervision. Now, if that's not happening, and we're not focusing on that, what do we do? Well, we can do certain things with our lifestyle to reduce exposure, and this is something we should all be doing because we're all being exposed. So, some of this might be a no-brainer and obvious, but other other things I mentioned here might be good reminders and things to consider. So. We know organic foods is going to have less toxins, generally speaking, than conventional. So pesticides are still being used, but again, it's it's probably a little less than conventional. Cook meat with a low heat and use it in a moist environment to reduce polyaromatic hydrocarbons, which are created with high heat, especially when you're using uh, oils that are oxidizing very easily and don't have a high smoke point. Um, okay, so eating wild-caught fish to reduce heavy metal exposure, eating less fish, like big game fish. Consider removing and replacing amalgams. If you haven't considered oral hygiene, that is a whole other topic, but we got to really get into that because that can be a big source of autoimmune disease in terms of pathogens, organisms, and the metals, and the cavitations, and these sort of things. Purchase non-stick cookware manufactured from ceramic or glass. Okay. Cast iron skillets. Okay. Those are those are really the best things to use. I don't use anything less, 
anything other than that. Choose BPA-free canned foods. And BPA is tough because we're always being exposed to plastic and Tupperware and thermal receipt papers. But again, you're not going to be perfect with it, but at least set the intention to choose BPA-free and don't drink your coffee out of the lid because that's another way to get exposed to BPA. And then cosmetics and personal care products can contain phthalates and parabens. And if you're really well invested in personal care products, I probably don't need to tell you this. And you, you're going to find products that are organic and are well-sourced and they aren't going to contain these things. But if you're not doing that and you're buying conventional popularized brands in the stores, I would highly recommend revisiting this. And then offer sunscreen that contains zinc oxide instead of the traditional conventional products out there, which are now being shown to be not so great, actually. And skincare is a whole other thing. Sunscreen is, is uh, maybe controversial, but to me, I'm not a big fan of what's used in most sunscreens and zinc oxide is the way to go. All right, so we're going to wrap it up there, and I hope this was helpful for you and it reminded you of some things that maybe you forgot about. But in a nutshell, don't get so wrapped up and attached to everything with toxins and metals. It's a complicated situation. Everyone's different. But the last thing I ever want to have someone do is get really stressed out about it and worry about everything they're being exposed to and consuming and doing in the world because. It's inevitable. We're all being exposed, but you have to have resilience. You have to have mental resilience, and that's going to be the gateway to metabolic resilience and proper detoxification, along with supporting your body to give it and giving it the things it needs to eliminate these things. All right. So thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Reach out to me at Justin Janoska on Instagram or send me an email. I'd love to hear from you, Justin at theautoimmunerevolution.com or simply go to theautoimmunerevolution.com for more resources, programs, and any sort of support you're looking for. Happy to connect with you. And I will see you next time on Autoimmune Revolution Radio. Peace and love.